Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. I'm here at the North Korean border, just a short distance from labor camps where more than 70,000 people are being held simply because they are Christians. The stories of persecution I've heard here are absolutely incredible. Entire families are sent to prison for crimes such as owning a Bible or telling someone about Jesus. They are beaten with electric stun rods and forced to work 12 hours a day of hard labor with little food, water, or rest. But despite the risk of such horrifying conditions, the North Korean church continues to grow. The people of North Korea are choosing hope over fear. They know God's word is the only thing powerful enough to break through the darkness of the most oppressive regime on earth. That's why they're constantly begging for more Bibles. And we're struggling just to keep up with the demand. But today, you can help meet the physical and spiritual needs of persecuted Christians and other people in need around the world. Your persecuted brothers and sisters need you. People lacking the most basic daily essentials need you. So will you help those in need today and give them hope for tomorrow? Thank you. 31 years ago, I started World Help, and I was speaking at Word of Life Bible Institute down in Florida, and Darren and Sally were there enjoying some R&R, and we became friends. He was the first pastor to invite me to his church to present the needs of world help, and I probably spent that whole week uh, using Darren as a sounding board. My apologies, 31 years later, but thank you for our friendship. The last time we were together was historic. We went out and had lunch. He said, I'd like to have you come back and speak. I said, I would love to, and I got in my car and drove to Washington, and the next day, the country shut down because of COVID. And the rest, as you know, is history. So I am glad to be back. Congratulations, Darren, Sally. What a wonderful ministry. And I, I can tell you that you notice I'm no longer the president of World Help. I'm the founder. My daughter's the president. Someone said, well, what does the founder do? Whatever the president tells him to do but I am so glad to be here. And thank you. 
thank you for your partnership in El Mitch and over the years, hundreds of thousands of dollars of partnerships in helping people uh, and giving them hope. Thank you so much. Of course, I'm glad to be here for another reason uh, today. I'm a cancer survivor. I'm just glad to be anywhere today. I'll never forget the day the doctors told me to go home and put my affairs in order that I had cancer. I probably would not survive 18 surgeries and surgical procedures, a year and a half of chemotherapy and radiation, many times, many times near death. And then finally, uh, the doctors gave me the news that I was in remission. Aren't you glad doctors are sometimes wrong? I know I am. And in that first surgery, they severed the nerve to my vocal cords in order to get all of the, the tumor out. And I couldn't speak for two years. And so after the chemo was finished, they did a surgery where they injected liquid Teflon into my vocal cords so that I could speak. But one of the side benefits of the Teflon ladies, as you know, is that Nothing sticks on the way down. And as you can tell, I'm in robust health. Um, and I, I met a friend that I hadn't seen in a long time, and he said, you've put on some weight since the last time I saw you. I said, well, the last time you saw me, I was nearly dead. I said, I'd rather be fat than dead. <laughs> Write that down in your Bible, that will preach. No, I am here today to say thank you, and I'm here today on a mission. I'm on a book tour for the persecuted church. My, my brothers and sisters have asked me, would I tell their story? And I was so honored and so humbled by that. And during COVID, I had the time to sit down and tell my stories in this book, If I Die Risking Death to Live for Jesus. And uh, I'll explain in a minute where that uh, title uh, came from. But uh, I decided to use this book to raise funds for the persecuted church. And... Uh, my, my son Josh told me, he said, Dad, don't charge people for your book. I said, what do you mean? He said, just give it away. He said, nobody's going to pay you money to buy your book. I said, well, son, that's not very nice. He said, no, serious, Dad. I was on Amazon, and one of your older books was for sale for a quarter. <laughs> and he said, and it was autographed. Do you know how embarrassing that is? And so I got to, he got me thinking, he made me mad at first, but he got me thinking and praying. And that's what God said, that's exactly what I want you to do. I said, he, so I, I felt that God was saying, just give it away for a donation of any amount for the persecuted church. And so I wrote Darren, I, uh, I told him the church didn't have to pay my travel expenses. Uh, they didn't have to pay my hotel. 
They don't have to pay me. I'm not being paid for being here today. I'm not taking any royalties on this book. All that goes back to the persecuted church. And thanks to a gracious donor, the expenses have been taken care of. So I'm here today for them. I remember the first church I had these books. I was so proud, so happy. It was a little church of 125 in California. And uh, I told Darren in the early service that something else I said to God that I wouldn't restrict where I go based on the size of the church, but, but based on the love and the passion to help the persecuted church. And so I was in this little tiny church, and after the service, the book table was outside because the church was so small, and I was sitting at a table, and a man came up. I found out later he was a dentist. A man came up and put a check in the basket. It was the first gift toward, toward the persecuted church, and I promise you I had prayed long and hard over that. And when he walked away, the wind blew the check open and it was a check for $1,000. And it was as if God was saying to me, you just be faithful. I'm gonna help the persecuted church and I'm gonna use all your friends to help too. So I'm here today on a mission. And first of all, I have to thank you, Darren, for allowing me to to be here. Of course, I've taken an offering every time I've come, so that's nothing new. But thank you, sir, and Sally, and I can't wait to see how God is gonna use you in the next chapter of your life. And and, um, so today, today I wanna challenge you and ask you, what would you do if you were in their shoes? Or better yet, what would you want us to do for you if you were in their shoes? Hebrews chapter 13, verse three, the author of Hebrews says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Wow. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. I told the earlier service, a few weeks ago I was in Ukraine on the border escorting uh, the 18th tractor trailer load of food that World Help had sent inside to to Ukraine. I can't tell you how we're distributing it. I spent the day inside the country working with our partners. I can just tell you that we've got longtime partners that are faithful, that have stayed behind, that are facing death just to keep people alive. And then I was later in Poland on the border where we've helped 22,000 people get their paperwork and their passports. They've had to flee with nothing but clothes on their back. 
And uh, I thought of this verse. I spent a day in Auschwitz concentration camp. And the last stop was the crematorium. One million Jews were murdered by the Nazis in that one camp. And uh, they were cremated in little ovens that looked like pizza ovens. And I was just so overwhelmed and there was a sign on the wall that said, never again. And then I thought of Ukraine. It's happening again. I want to tell you um, just one story. And this will show you what the book is like. It's uh, from the prologue. Someone suggested that I would sell more books if I gave you your choice of either buying a book or having me read it to you. So I said, no, I can't do that. But I want to tell you this one story. I met Ping several years ago on a trip to Vietnam. Her story of persecution is the kind that haunts you for days and weeks later. In some respects, it still haunts me today. I'll never forget the look on her face as she recounted the abuse and torture she had endured for being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This 34-year-old woman had once been a Buddhist and lived in a monastery. She had been sick for many years, and when Ping accepted Christ, she was immediately healed from her disease. She is now an evangelist and a church planter, and when I met her, she had started six churches and had 47 more new churches developing. This young woman had been arrested six times by the secret police. She suffered continuous persecution. She has been beaten numerous times, detained for weeks at a time, and fined the equivalent of $250, which is six months' salary. The police beat her on the head every day for two weeks until she almost died. And when she survived, they decided to tie her hands together and throw her overboard from a boat in the river. Once again, she miraculously survived. The police then forced her to march up and down a mountain for days. She said that when she could no longer stand the beatings, she would pray and ask God for strength. One day, the police publicly humiliated her by tearing off her shirt and parading her through the streets. And she stood in that public gathering half naked with her hands tied behind her back and said these words, I live for Jesus Christ. If I die, I die for Jesus Christ. And in honor of pain, I titled the book, If I Die. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor who wrote these words in 1937. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How could he have known that he himself would be hanged 
in a Nazi concentration camp, his only crime, he was a Christian. Many people think that persecution stopped in Bible times, but persecution of Christians around the world is more severe today than ever before. And because of communism, the 20th century saw more martyrs than the previous 19 centuries combined. In Sudan, Christians are enslaved. In Iran, they are assassinated. In China, they are beaten to death. In more than 60 countries worldwide, Christians are harassed, abused, arrested, tortured, and even executed specifically because of their faith. It is estimated that every five minutes a Christian is killed for their faith. That means an average of 105,000 believers are killed each year for simply being a Christian. That also means in the past 10 years, we've seen more than one million martyrs. And I'm here to say on their behalf, at their urging, a million martyrs is more than enough. And these aren't wild rumors, nor are these simply Christians who are suffering, suffering from war and tyranny. There are 80% of Ukraine's population are Christian. They're not suffering for their faith per se, they're suffering in war. But I'm talking about hundreds of millions of Christians who are suffering simply because of what they believe. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. He was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Philip was scourged and crucified. Matthew was slain with an ax. James the, the less was beaten to death. Matthias was beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to pieces. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. And Simon was crucified. Jesus literally called those disciples to come and die. And only one, John the Beloved, was the only apostle who escaped violent death. One authority writes, Christian persecution did not stop with the deaths of the apostles. It has continued throughout the centuries and grown dramatically in the last few decades. But make no mistake, Christian persecution is increasing and one way or another it affects us all. My friend Mark Batterson, who pastors a church just a few blocks from our nation's capital, said this in the introduction of his book, Play the Man. He tells the stripping story of the martyrdom of Polycarp, one of the early church fathers. I remember reading this story when I was just a teenager in the book Fox's Book of Martyrs. But on February 23rd, AD 155, in Smyrna, Greece, this is Mark Batterson's rendition 
of the death of Polycarp. He said, like Jesus entering Jerusalem, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna on a donkey. The Roman proconsul implored Polycarp to recant. He said, swear by the genius of Caesar. Polycarp held his tongue, held his ground. The proconsul prodded, swear and I will release you. Revile the Christ. Then Polycarp said those words which have stood the test of time for centuries that are now famous. He said, 80 and six years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The die was cast. Polycarp was led to the center of the Colosseum where three times the proconsul announced Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian and the bloodthirsty crowd chanted for death by beast, but the proconsul opted for fire. As his executioner seized his wrist to nail him to a stake, Polycarp stopped them and said, he who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to do so without the help of your nails. The pyre was lit on fire and Polycarp prayed one last prayer. He said, I bless you because you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour to be numbered among your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And soon the flames engulfed him but strangely, the flames did not consume him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, Polycarp was fireproof. And instead of the stench of burning flesh, the scent of frankincense wafted throughout the Colosseum. Using a spear, the executioner stabbed Polycarp through the flames. Polycarp bled out but not before the 12th martyr of Smyrna had lived out John's exhortation, be faithful even to the point of death. And Polycarp died fearlessly and faithfully and the way he died forever changed the way those eyewitnesses lived. It seems that Every day we hear another news story that there's been a church that's been attacked or a missionary who's held hostage or a Christian who's been murdered for their faith. But why is it that so many American Christians don't seem to care? One leader working with the persecuted church gives two reasons for Christians' relative lack of interest in the plight of suffering sisters and brothers worldwide. He said, number one, American Christians for the most part are not interested in anything that happens outside the boundaries of the United States and in many cases outside the boundaries of their own community. And number two, he said, American Christians have no experience of persecution or suffering for their faith that remotely resembles the experiences of many of our overseas brothers and sisters. So it's difficult to empathize. Many, many American Christians refuse to believe what is reported because it is so far outside their own experience. 
This is not a, a book of people I've heard about. This is a book about people I know, I've met, I've wept with them, I've prayed with them, I've seen the actual scars, I've heard the heartache and sorrow in their voices, I've seen the suffering in their eyes. It's an unforgettable picture that is etched on my heart and mind forever, and I hope that God never allows me to forget. And although we live in a world of disbelief and mistrust, we as Christians cannot afford to be skeptics about persecution. Persecution is real and it's happening all around us. And we should be on our knees every day thanking God this is not what we must endure daily. We should thank God that we don't have to watch our wives or our husbands and sons and daughters suffer immense pain and anguish and possibly even death just for their faith. But how are we as Christians to respond to the persecuted church? Does persecution really affect us? What is our responsibility and what can we learn from it? And how can we embrace a suffering church? Well, first of all, let me say doing nothing is not an option. Walking out of here today the same way we walked in is not an option. Someone suggested that when trying to make sense of persecution and martyrdom, four key reasons are usually given. One, persecution purifies the church. There are no nominal believers in the persecuted church. There are no Sunday morning Christians in the persecuted church. There are no casual Christians in the persecuted church. They show up besides Easter and Christmas. It's life or death to them. Number two, persecution unifies the church. There are no disputes over minor doctrinal issues in the persecuted church. There are no struggles for power in the persecuted church. They don't argue about which translation of the Bible to use. They're grateful if they can even hold one in their hands in their lifetime. Number three, persecution strengthens the church. Believers in the persecuted church are courageous and bold because every day they're compelled to take a stance for Jesus Christ. And number four, persecution grows the church. In 1950, when communism took over in China, and missionaries were expelled, there were only one million Christians in the entire country of China. Today, even the government recognizes there are at least 44 million Christians in China, and some, including myself, estimate that it could be as high as 130 million Christians in China, and the reason we don't know for sure is that many of them are meeting secretly in house churches. My first day in a house church was in Guangzhou, a city of millions of people, where I was visiting Lin Xingao, his 
Americanized name is Pastor Samuel Lamb. He spent 20 years in prison. His only crime was preaching the gospel. While he was in prison, his wife died, his mother died. They never bothered to tell him. He didn't find out until 20 years later when he was released from prison. And they put him under house arrest with the secret police on the first floor and him living on the second and third floor of an apartment where he knocked out the walls and, and, and built benches and had numerous house church services there every week. When he started growing the house church, they arrested him again and beat him, interrogated him and sent him home and said, close the church down. I said, what did you do? He said, I stood before the people the next Sunday and said, the authorities said, we must close down. I said, what happened? He said, the next Sunday, church attendance doubled. I think they were having six or seven house church services there with several thousand believers meeting in an apartment in an alley. When I walked up the stairs, I felt like I was walking on holy ground. I saw a group of teenagers writing feverishly, making copies of the Gospel of John to give out to their friends at school the next day because they only had one Bible in the whole church. And I'll never forget what Samuel Lamb told me. One of the greatest honors of my life was the Sunday he invited me to speak in his pulpit. I'll never forget when he told me, he said, Vernon, please, please don't pray for the persecution to stop. What? What? He said, the more persecution, the more people come to Christ. Pray that God would make us strong in the face of persecution. These are the people that have asked me to do this. Consider North Korea. I've been twice. As we drove over the Tumen River, our guide told us how North Koreans came to the riverbank and waited until evening to attempt the risky swim into mainland China. The border guards have orders to shoot on sight anyone attempting to cross the river illegally. And one guide added almost as an afterthought that the Tumen River has probably witnessed more deaths than any other river in the world. And nowhere is persecution of believers more severe than in North Korea. I'm not even able to share with you many of the atrocities committed by these and against these believers, especially the stories of how hundreds of Christ followers are executed every year in one instance, when a church, a group of church leaders did not reject Christ, the police directed that a bulldozer be driven over them, crushing them to death. The government is rounding up entire families up to three generations and throwing them in labor camps. A believer can be sentenced up to 15 years in a labor camp just for owning a Bible, singing a hymn, or praying, all of which we've done this morning. 
And it's estimated that more than 25% of the believers in North Korea are currently suffering in prison camps, one out of four. Most Christians die within three years in the prison camp, so in reality, it's not a 15-year sentence, it's a death sentence. So many of the Christians who go into these labor camps will never come out. They're starved and beaten and tortured, mutilated, abused, assaulted. Another man had been distributing Bibles throughout North Korea for years. When officers finally discovered what he had been doing, they decided to make an example of him, so they beat him brutally over and over again until he died. For 20 consecutive years, North Korea has been ranked the most oppressive place in the world for Christians. And though exact numbers are difficult to confirm, it's estimated that there are 300,000 Christians in North Korea and 70,000 of them are believed to be held in these prison camps, 25%, one out of four. I don't pretend to understand even a fraction of what these people are going through, but I know if I were in their shoes, I would want to know that someone still cares about me. North Korea needs more Bibles, more churches. That's the only thing they asked me for. They did not ask for money. And I believe God is challenging you and me to respond to the believers in North Korea. It's long past time for feeling shocked or even sorry for Christians. It's time to act. Christians all across the world must come to the aid of those who are suffering persecution because of their religious beliefs. Can you imagine? Could you imagine what we could do today to help the persecuted church? I mean, really help the persecuted church if we were just willing my late friend, Luis Palau, said this, how many more Christians will have to suffer and die before we realize that it is our job to try to stop these atrocities? We are so often so caught up with our own petty problems that we don't make time to think about the Christians who are bleeding and dying across the world. There's so much more that needs to be done. There's so many needs that we can meet. They need to have training to plant churches. In India alone, there are 500,000 villages that don't have an evangelical church of any kind. And we must train church leaders and church planters to start them. They need to have buildings in which to meet. The Hindus say to the Christians in Asia, if your God is so great, why don't you have a place to worship him? They need Bibles. Do you realize that there are still millions of Christians who have never held a Bible, let alone own one? And we can do something about that this morning. They need prayer. 
Nothing of eternal significance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. We must be mobilized to pray for the persecuted church. I pray that God would lay on the hearts of many of you to start a prayer meeting for the persecuted church. And this book is full of prayer requests that can help guide your prayer time. And they need for us to follow their example. You say, what do you mean? Well, the persecuted church does not understand our lifestyle. The persecuted church does not understand our materialism, our selfishness, our prayerlessness. It's a mystery to them how they can have so very little and love God so very much. And they look at us and see we have so very much and compared to them love God so very little. If believers in North Korea and in India and in China and Vietnam and all around the world are willing to die for Jesus Christ, surely we should be willing to live for Jesus Christ. I've saved the text of my message until the end. 1 John 3, 17. And I believe as we read these words that they are so timely for us today. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. In the words of the British abolitionist William Wilberforce who helped end slavery in Great Britain long before it was ended here in America, I think his words apply to us today. He said, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. I'm not above begging. If you'd have seen the tears in their eyes when they asked me, please, Vernon, tell our story. Just tell our story. Someday my grandkids are going to say, Poppy, what did you do to help the persecuted church? I want to be able to look at them and say, I gave them hope. I gave them hope. And every one of you can do that right now. Thank you, Grace Church. I love you. Darren, if this is our last time together, it's been a great run. Thank you for your friendship and God's blessing on you. I know he's not finished with this yet. 
we'll find some mischief to get into. But I love you, my friend. God bless you. Thank you.